Almighty God, in your word you tell us that the wind blows from where from directions that we don't we don't know where it comes from, Lord. And your spirit moves and clarifies and brings truth and brings light in dark places. Father, we ask you this morning that you would give light. Lord, that you would clarify your word to us, that you would give life to dead hearts. Lord, we ask that in your word, you would bring great joy. That you would teach us obedience. And that as your word goes forth in this place, that it would change hearts and that you would receive glory. So speak to us this morning, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right. <clears throat> now, it's sometimes been said that there are certain human experiences that are universal. Fear, love, grief, joy, perseverance, desire. Now, of course, we don't experience all these things all at once, but there's something in us that recognizes these human qualities and readily identifies, regardless of our, our race, our nationality, our ethnicity, our religious or educational background. These things are just basically synonymous with being human. I'm reminded of this as a, as a musician, as a jazz musician. You know, I play jazz bass, and you know, a lot of things. A lot of times, as jazz, uh, when jazz musicians get together, uh, there's a certain uh, list of songs that are just considered jazz standards. And so, regardless of who you are, even what nationality you are, what instrument you play, even musicians who've never been in the same room before, we can come into the same room and say, "Hey, uh, let's play Autumn Leaves." You know that one? And Everybody's like, yeah, of course we know that one, because there's this list of maybe 50 or so songs that everybody just knows. They're, they're universal. So when we think about these universal human experiences, well, there's one, there's one that perhaps you might not have thought of. Worship. That's right, worship. Worship is universal. Everybody worships. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, how can worship be a universal experience? I mean, obviously, worship is pretty much tied to religion, but not everybody is religious. And even those of us who are religious aren't religious to the same degree. All right, well, fair enough. If, if that's the way you feel, then I'd have to say that you're only half right. Yes, worship is a religious experience. Experience, But it's not limited to the, the outward kind of religion that you and I so commonly associate with worship. So you, you know the kind of things I'm talking about. You know, coming to a church service on Sunday. Uh, praying at scheduled times throughout the day. You know, reading and reflecting on passages from a, a devotional book. 
You know, for many of us, these are important expressions of worship. But they're not the thing itself. Worship is, is deeper than this. Worship speaks to the, the deepest longings of the heart. Worship, worship is our experience to the, is our response to the source of our greatest joy and the object of our deepest desire. Yes, worship is a profoundly human experience. All right, so why am I bringing this up? Why, why am I just talking about worship? Well, as you know, Christmas is coming up in a couple weeks. And perhaps more than any other holiday, Christmas is shrouded in so much confusion about what it is we're actually celebrating. I'll give you an example. Okay, so just this past week, a friend of mine, a Christian pastor, mentioned that he recently heard a, a Christian radio DJ describe the holiday classic Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire as a song that reminds us of the hope that we have during the season. <clears throat> if you'll indulge me for a moment, I will read some of the lyrics of Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire. And I quote, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Yuletide songs being sung by a choir and folks dressed up like Eskimos. And I'll stop there. Now, could it be that the lyrics of chestnuts roasting on an open fire actually represent the source of our greatest joy and the object of our deepest desire? Well, it's, it sounds silly, but there really is much at stake here. Because as we look ahead to the celebration of Christmas, millions of people around the world are celebrating the wrong thing. And billions more aren't even celebrating at all. These are our neighbors, family members, our, our coworkers, Strangers we encounter in the grocery store aisle. Maybe even some of us sitting in this room right now. But of course, it's not just Christmas, is it? It's all the time. We always find ourselves hoping in all kinds of things. Are those the right things? Are those the, the right things to be finding our, our deepest joy in? And are those the right things to be desiring above all else, above all else and, and structuring our lives to pursue those things? Well, that's the question I want to pose this morning. Because if we get this question wrong of are these the right things to worship, then all of us will undoubtedly face an unspeakably horrible future if we die worshiping the wrong thing. So my burden this morning is simple. I want to help you consider what or who you're worshiping. And then I want to help you to embrace with joy the worship that leads to life. And to do that, I want us to turn to uh, Psalm 103. If you're looking in your pew Bible provided, I believe it's on page 502. And this is a, a psalm that is going to help direct our hearts and our minds to uh, the joy that leads to life. The joy that, that 
the living God provides in Himself. So if you're there with me, we'll read together Psalm 103. This is the word of the Lord. Of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all bless the Lord O you his angels you mighty ones who do his word obeying the voice of his word bless the Lord all his hosts his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. This is the word of the Lord. This psalm is written by King David, as we see in the, uh, the title line here. Uh, it says, of David. So we would assume that that's the same David who is the king of Israel. So he was chosen and appointed by God to rule over God's chosen nation. So this King David here, as the appointed ruler of God's people, writes this, this song. And it's really a, a song of, of joyful expression of who God is. And it also demonstrates how humans should respond to God. So, that, so those are the two things that David does here. He describes who God is, and he demonstrates how human beings should respond. And there's a lot here, and we're going we're gonna to dive into it and, and dissect some of the things specifically that David's saying. But uh, on, on, a, on a broad scale here, the main point that David wants to take away from us is that God is supremely good 
And he alone is worthy of all our worship. God is supremely good and he alone is worthy of all our worship. So our our whole selves are supposed to be reoriented toward God in a way that, that shows him to be supremely good. And so that's what worship that's what worship does. It displays the supreme goodness of God. And really, worship is the only appropriate response to God from humans. And so as we look at this psalm, that's sort of the, the main 10,000-foot view of looking down. Of, okay, here's the main thing that we're to take away. But specifically, what can we look in in this psalm that really teaches us about the quality of worship? What does worship mean practically? Is it just singing songs? Is it just is it preaching? Is it evangelism? I mean, what is the essence of worship? Well, I think David tells us two things uh, about worship that, that we can take away this morning. So the first thing I wanted to uh, point to, to today is David shows us how we worship. So that's point number one, if you're taking notes, how we worship. And so if you're asking the question, how do we worship according to uh, Psalm 103? Well, the answer is, well, we worship to display God's supreme worth in all things and above all else. So we worship in a way that displays God's supreme worth in all things and above all else. So look here, David begins the psalm and and the, the refrain that echoes throughout the psalm is this phrase, bless the Lord. So David says here in verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. What, is, what does this mean when he says, bless the Lord? Well, some of you, some of you may be looking at uh, the, uh, a different translation that says, praise the Lord. Well, the, the idea there is that you know, what, what, what's happening is that we come to God and we, we pay tribute. So the, the word that David uses literally means to pay tribute, to kneel, to, to show delight, to, to pay homage. So what David's saying here is that we come to God and we... We come paying him tribute. We come giving God the credit that he deserves. And when we bless the Lord or we praise the Lord, you know, we give God our full attention, our full affection, and our full allegiance. So if you're thinking about, okay, well, what does that mean to, to praise God or to, to bless the Lord? I think it's helpful to think of it in, in sort of those three parts. Number one being giving God our full attention. Secondly, giving God our full affection. And then third, giving God our full allegiance. So the, the three A's, if you will, of, of praise. So practically, I wanted to, to sort of climb into each one of those and think about, okay, what does that mean to approach God in that way? What does it mean to give God our full attention? Well, mainly it means that, that we acknowledge that God is real and he's awesome. God is real and he's awesome. So... When I was in college, uh, as I said, you know, I, I grew up here in Northern Virginia, but I went to college in, uh, in North Carolina, uh, the, the vast wilderness of Eastern North Carolina, as, as I said. Um, and I remember the first time that I experienced a hurricane. And um, you know, all my friends who, who kind of grew up in North Carolina, especially those who had kind of grown up near the coast, they're like, oh, this is like, you know, this is a weaker hurricane. This isn't bad at all, but to me, I was terrified. And you know, I'm looking at the weather maps and this big blob is coming and it's it's swirling and it's heading in our direction and we're right in the bullseye and 
and they're saying, yeah, you know, everybody, you know, class is canceled, so maybe if you can evacuate, but you know, take shelter. So I'm, I'm staying there in my dorm, class is canceled, and I see these winds just bending trees, and I, I, I just hear the noise of the howling of, of the wind, and you know, I, I see the rain just coming down in just enormous rates. And I thought to myself, wow, that is, that is pretty awesome. It's terrifying. It's not, it's not a good kind of awesome. It's not like, you know, you know when, when my, my team wins, I'm a big sports fan, so, you know, I say, yeah, all right, it's awesome, you know, we, we won the game. But this is a different kind of awesome. This is an awesome that strikes fear into my heart. Terror. Just looking at the, the sheer weight of what's happening and what approaches me. And that's really what David's saying here. In verse, in verse 1, he says, Bless the Lord, all, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Well, that word holy actually means, in the original Hebrew language, it literally means weighty. So, weight. So, God is weighty. And his name, his reputation, who he is, is weighty to us. And so for God's people, that means that God outweighs all other concerns. So to be loved by God is greater than any other joy. And to be judged by God is more terrifying than any other threat. And so it's with this in mind, <clears throat> this weightiness of God, that David entreats his, his soul. He's speaking to his own soul, speaking inwardly to himself and saying, the response to that is to, to acknowledge that, to acknowledge God's weightiness, the, the reality and the awesomeness of God. But not only that, secondly, uh, David models for us that we are to give God our affection. So what that means is that we, we love God, we delight in who he is, and we desire to live in fellowship with God. And so loving, loving God is really at the heart of what it means to worship. So not only do, do we stare in the face of God's awesomeness, God's weightiness, but we also desire Him. I mean, think back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, where God, is, God has given His people Israel the law through Moses, and Moses now speaking to the people really summarizes what the law is all about. And he says these words in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. So there, Moses, having just introduced and summarized all of what the law is about, he says it's, it's, it's about love. Love the Lord your God with everything you have. And then later on in, in the Gospels, Jesus himself identifies this as the greatest, most central commandment of God. When, when he's asked, point blank, Jesus, okay, I'm doing everything I can. I'm following all the commandments. What do I need to do? And Jesus says, well, the greatest commandment is to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. So what we see here is the very heartbeat of worship. It's, it's coming to God and, and seeing him for who he is and being struck with the sheer awesomeness of him 
and then loving Him. And then thirdly, as we come to God with our attention and our affection, we come to Him with our allegiance. And in, in giving God our allegiance, we commit our life to displaying God's supreme worth above all else. So God's people live lives that display God's true worth. That's really what it means. Everything we do is meant to display just how worthwhile it is to love God and just how worthy God is above all other things. And so the, the, the real question there is, well, whose side are you on? So that's the question whenever you're talking about allegiance. Well, whose side do you take? One practical thing to, to, to think about is, you know, when we're trying to gauge our own allegiance, our own heart's allegiance to God, you know, think about sin. If you can point to any one sin or something that you see in your life or somebody else has brought up to you, ask that question, well, whose side am I taking? Am I taking God's side with regard to my sin? Or do I love my sin and want to hold on to my sin? It's a good question to ask when we think about our allegiance to God. So, as, as we see here, you know, we're, we're asking the question, how do we worship? And we said that, well, the way that we worship is that we, we worship in a way that displays God's supreme worth in all things and above all else. But David really also shows us the character of worship. He shows us, uh, number one, that it's, it's, it starts with the individual. In verses 1 through 5, this is David just talking to his own soul. He's saying, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. So, so David's recognizing here that, that worship is primarily and essentially an inward spiritual experience that happens and then emanates outwards. So worship is not fundamentally the outward things that we do, but starts in the heart of the individual. It's a, it's a personal thing between God and you. Worship. But he doesn't stop there. No, in, in verses 6 through 18, we learn that there's also a community aspect to worship. David begins rehearsing this history of God's works and God's speaking and acting on behalf of his people. And so he mentions Moses and he mentions the people of Israel. And what that shows us and what that reminds us is that God himself is a God of a people. He's called a people to himself. He's made a covenant with that people and he's remembered that covenant. He's saved his people. And then thirdly, uh, in, in the final verses in, in, in 20 through 22, uh, David shows us that this worship is something that happens in all of creation. All of God's creation really performs this essential function of worship. It displays the supreme goodness, the supreme value, the supreme worthiness of God himself. And so thus David in those final, uh, final verses, he exhorts the angels and he exhorts the works of God and the hosts of God to, to give their praise, to speak up. And so there's this, this image of this chorus of not only the individual and not only the people of God, but all of creation, all of the universe that God has created, sort of speaking up in harmony together to, to give God the praise that he's due. So that's briefly just you know, a, a layout of what David says about 
how we worship. But I, I really believe that uh, the heart of David's message here is really the, the second point of why we worship. So that's point number two here, why we worship. And if we're asking why do we worship, well, the answer to that question is because God has mercifully redeemed us from death and given us a glorious inheritance. Now, as we talked about before, God, worship is rooted in God's holiness and the weightiness of God, but particularly it's rooted in who God is and what he's done for his people, through his people and for his people, and namely that's redeeming mercy that he's given to sinners. Look here in, in <coughs> excuse me, uh, look here in, in verse 2, where David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. David points out a, a number of things about who God is and, and how God acts. God is the God who, who forgives, he heals, he redeems, he rewards, he satisfies. And there in those first few verses, David, he, he points to the fact that his individual experience of God is that God has done those things for himself. And so therefore, he is to respond in worship. Now, in Scripture, we look and we can see in, in you know, 2 Samuel verse 7, for example, that God has made a covenant with David. And that covenant represents all of these, these promises and all of these gifts that God has given to David. But not only that, here in verses 16 through, in verses 6 through 18, uh, David continues, not just talking about himself, but talking about the community of God, how God blesses the people in these same ways. Verse 6, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. He will not keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. So here David is just rehearsing and drawing out all the ways that God has blessed his people. He's a God who's revealed his righteousness and justice to his people. God is a God who has, has called his people out of slavery. He's given them his law. He's treated them as, the, as a son to himself. You know, as a father shows compassion on his children, God has shown great compassion and great mercy toward his people, his chosen, precious people. And so we see this pattern of, of how God operates, how God works with his people. God chooses his people. He makes a, a covenant promise with his people. He saves his people from destruction. God restores and establishes his people. And one thing you'll notice is that it's all done by God's mercy. None of it's deserved, but it's rather God remembering, remembering the promise that he 
has made. Remembering his people and saving his people, redeeming his people, buying them back from destruction. And so God's redeeming mercy, as David summarizes here, really runs all throughout Scripture. And we don't have time to do it this morning, but um, I think David gives a, a beautiful illustration of a beautiful summary of how God relates to his people. All throughout the Bible, just the history of, you know, from the first human being, Adam, all the way through the people that he's chosen as his nation to represent him and to, uh, for, him, for himself to dwell there. This is how God works. And God's redeeming mercy to both David and Israel really point to a greater mercy that, it, that exists, a greater mercy that God has shown to all of us in Christ. You see, like David and like the people of Israel, God created us, created all of us, to, to bear His image and to reflect and to say something about who He is. And not only should we say something about who God is, but our lives were designed to perfectly display the holiness of God, the, the weightiness of God, the righteousness, the supreme goodness of God. That's what our lives are supposed to be like. But if you look at the, the history of humankind in Scripture, you'll see that, well, that's not what we've done. Anybody who's, who's honest will, will say, well, no, I'm, I'm not a perfect person. I've done things that I know I shouldn't do or things that I know probably I could have done in a much wiser way. And God has given each of us a conscience that, that declares what is right and speaks to us what is good and what is just and what is true. And so even as we try to suppress our conscience, we try to push that aside and, and, and pursue these things that, that we desire. We pursue the joys of this world. We worship ourselves. Even as we do that, our conscience still declares that God is king and that he has designed us and he has made us to perfectly reflect him. But we don't do that. And as a result, what we deserve is judgment. When you break a, a law and you're caught, what, what happens? Well, normally, you're held accountable for what you've done. And depending on the severity of what you've done, or what you've done, that will determine the sentence that's, that you must live out. Well, in God's perfect wisdom and perfect righteousness, anything that we've done to offend Him demands a perfect, eternal judgment. And so God, because He's good, has promised that He will not let any sin go unaccounted for. And He tells us later on in Scripture that the wages of sin 
is death. And because our sin is an offense to an eternal, holy God, well, our sin demands an eternal, holy punishment. So because none of us is holy, none of us is perfect the way God has commanded us to be, we sit just waiting and expecting judgment. And if God were to judge us, if God were to just declare and, and execute this judgment and say, everybody will die for their sin and will suffer the eternal wrath that they deserve, all of creation, as David says here, all of creation would rejoice and would, and would applaud his righteousness. But... God is a merciful God. God is a gracious God. And God's desire was not that we should perish in our sins, but that we should have eternal life, eternal relationship, eternal communion with Him, praising Him and loving Him and being loved by Him forever. So He sent His Son, Jesus, who did live a perfect life that we didn't live. And he bore the judgment that we deserved when he died on a cross. And on the third day, after having died and bearing the, the weight of the wrath that we deserve, that wrath, take, taking that wrath in our place, Jesus rose from the dead. And so there he defeated that, that curse of death. He defeated the, the punishment of of sin that awaited for us, that, that, that condemnation. He defeated it in his own flesh. And now the only way that, that we can grab that gift, the only way that we can, can own that salvation for ourselves, that gift that God has given to us in Christ, is to turn from our sins and to trust in Jesus. Not to trust in our own, our own religious efforts, to trust in our own moral goodness, but to trust only in Jesus Christ, our Savior, who's died for our sins. And in a lot of ways, when we look at turning from our sins, what we've called repentance, that's really the heart of worship. Because what we do when we worship is we, we turn from worshiping ourselves, from worshiping the world around us, from seeking those things to give us joy and fulfillment and desiring those things above all else. And we turn from those and we give all that to God. We give all our attention, all our affection, all our allegiance to God. So in many ways, this is practically what your worship will look like. And it's the only way you can worship. So I want to plead with you this morning, if you haven't turned from your sins, if you don't know that joy of just the freedom of, of knowing that your sins are, are forgiven and trusting that it's, there's nothing in and of myself that I can do to make myself right before this holy judge, if you don't know that joy and that peace, I plead with you. Just consider Consider the mercy of God. 
in providing you a Savior. A Savior who says, come, all who are weary, and find rest. Find your rest in Jesus. If you, if you want more information, or want to know more about what that means or what that, what that looks like to find your rest in Jesus, I'll be in the back after the service. And so many friends here, I'm sure, would be more than happy to, to spend an afternoon with you just explaining the hope that they have in Jesus and the hope that he promises you if you'll turn from your sins. So, I want to, as we get ready to conclude, I, I, I do want to just ask the question again, who or what do you worship? And as I ask that question, I also want you to think about, well, what does my worship look like? What could my worship look like? What, what does it mean for me to practically in my life worship this God? This God who has said, as far as the, the east is from the west, that's how far I've separated your sins from you. You can't even, you can't even see. You can't even see and touch the east and the west. It's just that illustration is beautiful because it says, no more. Are you, are you and your sins connected when it comes to the way God sees you, the way God uh, regards you? And so thinking about that, how, how do you respond to God giving him your, your full attention, your full affection, your full allegiance? What does this look like in your, your family? What does it look like in your workplace? You know, what, what will it look like for you to recognize God for all that he is? For you to love this God? And for you to commit yourself in everything to giving him all that he deserves? To displaying the, the full majesty of God? Well, God demands that we worship him. And the most wonderful news of all is that everything that God requires of us, He has provided for us in Jesus Christ. Everything God has required of us, He has provided for us in Jesus Christ. So that, that's what the Christmas season is all about. It's about the almighty King of the universe revealing Himself. Revealing his amazing love by sending us a Savior who has made a way for us to worship this awesome and worthy God. So I entreat you, Arlington Baptists, as individuals and as a family, decide right now that Christ will be your joy, that Christ will be your desire. Bring the joy of Christ to the community of Arlington, Virginia, and to the world. See Christ. Savor Christ. And surrender to Christ. Let's pray.
Almighty God, we stand as those who on our own have failed to worship you as you require. And yet, Lord, you have shown us tremendous, extravagant mercy in choosing us before the foundation of the world and providing us with a Savior and calling us out of darkness so that we should love you and follow you so that we should worship you. Oh Lord, as we anticipate the celebration of remembering <coughs> that very act of you providing Jesus in the flesh this Christmas season. Father, we just pray that you would be stirring our hearts, our minds with affections for you. There's so many other things that, that battle for our heart. So many fleeting joys that in and of themselves seem promising, but they don't hold the same promise, the same glory, the same peace that you offer. Not even close. So Father, we just pray that you would fill us with your spirit. Teach us to, to love you, to desire you, to turn from desiring these lesser joys. And that we would find our complete satisfaction in you, the maker of our souls. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.